Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. Welcome back. We are in second, almost said first, second Samuel chapter 10. Uh, We may venture into chapter 11 as well. We'll have to watch the time. Chapter 11 is a much larger discussion than chapter 10. So uh, my Bible calls chapter 11, David and Bathsheba. I think it would be better titled David and Uriah, but we'll see why when we get there. So let's read chapter 10 first. David defeats Ammon in Syria. So, and then uh, let's talk about it. So uh, before we read, let's pray. Lord, thank you for king cakes and for fellowship with one another and for opportunity during the week to gather together around your word, to read it, to consider it, to discuss it together. We pray that you would bless this next hour as we read your word together. Would you give us insight? Would you open our eyes to see things that perhaps we've not seen before or had forgotten? Would you help us to make connections and to see not just more of David and your way with David, but more of ourselves, but more of you and of your way with your people and the ways that your Old Testament dealings with David point us to your dealings with us in Christ. When we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 10. After this, the king of the Ammonites died and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, their Lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. And when it was told David, he sent to meet them for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers and the king of Maaka with 1,000 men, and the men of Tov, 12,000 men. And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob and the men of Tob and Maaka were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, 
And let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadad Ezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates. They came to Helam with Shobach, the commander of the army of Hadad Ezer at their head. And when it was told David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen and wounded Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadad Ezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. All right. What do you notice? It seems like when the Ammonites decide they, that David's up to no good and they you know, mistreat the messengers and become a stench to Israel and then hire the Syrians, I kind of want the Ammonites to get the greater punishment, yet it seems like it's really the Syrians that are taught a lesson more so than the Ammonites. By the end of this chapter, that's definitely the case. It's the Arameans or the Syrians, right? Same people, different ways it's handled in English translation. They're the ones who come under the yoke of David, right? They're clearly defeated, subjugated, and become subject to David. But we end the chapter on this weird lack of resolution because it's two peoples that went to war with David and one of them has come to the end of fighting and has become subject to David. And the other one is just defeated in battle. And so this chapter is actually the beginning of what some folks call the Ammonite War, uh, whose conclusion won't be reached until the end of chapter 12. And other stuff is going to take our attention after this chapter for a while. But you're right. So the, the Syrians are not just defeated, but they become subject to David. And the Ammonites, they've just lost the battle. And then they go home and they got to think about what they're going to do. The, the, the Syrians get more of our attention because it's as though they take offense at losing to David in battle. And so they decide to try again. But, but then they become utterly humiliated. So if this sounds familiar, back in chapter 8, where we got kind of the wide angle view on all the conquests during David's reign and how the Lord prospered him wherever he went. We got kind of a six or so verse summary of what here is expanded into a whole chapter and part of which is left unresolved for almost two more whole chapters. So we got the summary in chapter eight and then we get the narration of the whole conflict here. Were either the Assyrians or the Ammonites not destroyed when they went into Israel, and this is coming back to Bible. So these are both peoples who are outside Canaan. Um, I'll draw my terrible map again. Where we've got um, here's the Mediterranean, here's the Red Sea. I need a red marker for that. It's not nearly that wide. Sorry. 
Uh, we've got the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan, the Dead Sea. And Israel's neighbors on the east side, right? All the ites live over here, west of Jordan, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean. But over on the east side, we've got Syria, Ammon, Moab, and Edom. And so we're talking about these people who live, um, this is too far north, actually. We need to bring them down a little bit. But they live to the northeast so of Israel. The promised land. They're not part of the promised land. So Ammon is descended from Lot. In Syria, the Arameans, they're, that's the same people that um, Abram comes from. So when Jacob has to go back, well, when Isaac goes back and then Jacob goes back to get a wife, it's from the Arameans up in Syria. Syria's offering to help. I don't think that's going to help. So they're not, they're not the ites from the land, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Hittites, and I'm forgetting some ites. So those are west side of Jordan. These are people from east side of Jordan. Why does Hanan um, shave off the beard and cut their garments in verse 4? Good. It's a good question. So um, David sends these guys, right? And we've got all kinds of questions about Nahash. And when did David get on good terms with Nahash? Because the last time we heard anything about Nahash was in 1 Samuel 11 and then 12. Nahash, in command of the Ammonites, is the one who is besieging Jabesh Gilead. So Saul's first military victory, which was supposed to be against the Philistines, was instead against this guy's dad, Nahash of the Ammonites, when he was besieging Jabesh Gilead. So at that time, he's Israel's enemy, right? But he's Saul's enemy. And so maybe, although we don't ever get the story behind it, maybe as Saul's enemy, he became somewhat of a natural ally for David. We don't ever get the backstory. All we get is this little note here that tells us that David and Nahash were on good terms. Didn't he send him wooden stuff to build his house? Uh, that's Hiram of Tyre. David gets along pretty well with a lot of his neighbors, except the Philistines. So, but when his father dies, so Nahash dies, Hanun comes to power. David sends these guys to comfort them. And he listens to the advice of the guys his age. That's never a good move, right? Hanun does it here. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, is going to do it in 1 Kings. It never works out well. But keep in mind what we learned in chapter 8. David has been expanding Israel's borders. And especially he's been beaten up on the Philistines. So what they are suggesting to Hanun has a certain plausibility. They're not just pulling that out of their pocket because they don't like David. David's a powerful and successful military commander who evidently, we see in this chapter, has a really, really good intelligence network. As you'll notice, he's responding to things when he hears about them before people take action. All throughout this chapter, he doesn't have to wait for armies to show up on the battlefield before he starts arranging his generals in response. He hears news of what they're planning and is able to act preemptively. 
So there's a certain plausibility, both in general and in terms of David's policy and his intelligence network, that, hey, if he sends people unsolicited into your territory with the cover story that they're here with Hallmark cards and chocolates and, and all that sort of thing, they're probably here to spy out the land. But Hanun doesn't do any investigation. He just goes straight for shaving their beards and stealing the pants. Now, our English translations, most of them have made this um, a little more delicate than it's phrased, right? Um, most of our English translations say they he cut their clothes off at the hips. That's not what the Hebrew says. He cut their clothes off at their buttocks, right? Their bottoms are showing. He stole their pants and their underwear and sends them back home with half their beard shaved off and nothing on bottom. Humiliation. Humiliation, right? It's the, it's the frat guys, right? You never want to be the first one to fall asleep at a sleepover. Well, all the, all the pranks you hear about guys pulling on each other, they did that to David's men, only not because they fell asleep, right? And they sent them back intentionally humiliating them uh, as a demonstration of power, as, as a way of thumbing their nose at what they thought was a military threat. Turns out they were right, but not for the reasons they thought they were, right? But because of how they received David. And notice how the chapter starts, right? Chapter 9 focused on David dealing loyally with Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake. Dealing faithfully with the son because of his relationship with the father. So here in this chapter, he's reaching outside Israel, but we're told expressly by the narrator, he's seeking to deal faithfully with the son because of his relationship with the father. But whereas Mephibosheth received that loyal dealing with him, uh, Hanun doesn't. So, so he's in the back. And notice David's concern for his servants uh, in verse 5, right? Uh, he hears about this. He sends word to them. Jericho is one of the first towns they would pass through after they crossed the Jordan on their way back. He's like, hey, get a room in Jericho, buy some pants, let your beards grow back, and then you can return. Like, you don't have to come walking back into Jerusalem for everybody to see humiliated like this. Right? You can stay there. We can send notes back and forth until your beards have grown back. Right? And it's, there's a lot involved in the particular things that they do to embarrass them because it's not just embarrassing. Right? Um, it's showing them to be powerless it's making these grown, seasoned warriors look like baby-faced boys, but only with half their face, right? So there's, there's a threat in the humiliation as well. So then they realize they've got to make good on it. Gotta be what? Then they realize they've got to make good on it because David's not going to just let that go and say, oh, well, Look at this. My greeting card came back. Return to sender. No. What do they do as soon as they realize they're in a pickle? Fight. They get ready to fight. Yeah. 
right? Like what, what would you do if you realized that you had angered the strongest kid on the playground? Right? Yeah, you're going to get back up, right? You're going to go get your brother. You're going to go get your brother's friends. And you're going to hope that they don't bring their friends because you know what's coming. And that's immediately what the Ammonites do. And notice, we get a sense of the Syrians and what they're like from how Joab arranges things. When they go to meet in battle, Joab and all of the best, the choice men, are facing the Syrians that the Ammonites have hired. And he puts his brother and the rest facing off against the Ammonites. So these guys are like, if you wanted anybody on your side, it was the Syrians. Like they were the biggest, meanest, strongest, most experienced. They're not the Assyrians. Those are different people and they're much worse. But you get the sense that Joab knew enough to be afraid of those guys, although he was not going to show it. And he was going to face them with the best he had to offer. What else do you notice about Joab's conversation with his brother there as he's making those arrangements? This is starting in verse 9 and following. Well, I've made an agreement. If they're too strong, then I'll come help you. If yours are too strong, or mine are too strong, you come. An agreement to help each other, depending on who was strong and who was weak. Yeah, it doesn't leave him much of an option if they're both overrun, does it? Yeah. But if they're too strong for you, I'll help you. If, you're, if they're too strong for me, you help me. What else does he say? I mean, he is, does say he's fighting for God and that the Lord will do what is good in his sight. Yeah. All of a sudden, seemingly almost out of nowhere, Joab is a faithful worshiper of the Lord. Now, he's been at the head of David's army, and he's an Israelite, but what have we consistently seen, right? He's crafty. He's a man of the world. He's a man of violence. But here at the end of his rope, stuck between a rock and a hard place, he shows in what he says a glimpse of faith. That's the last thing we expect from Joab. Kind of like how the last thing we expect of David would be that he's a murderer. As we read the next couple chapters, Joab and David kind of swap roles. They're reversed, although Joab will happily kind of go back to the other side also when it comes to getting his hands dirty for David's sake. But there's this subtle reversal in what we see from versus what we expect from these two powerful leaders in this chapter and the next. Well, they say that no atheist can follow. They say that. Yeah, I've, I've heard uh, a number of combat veterans comment that that's, that's actually not true. Yeah. They're just really sad. <laughs> so, yeah. But Joab certainly in the foxhole is no atheist. Maybe it's his deathbed. But you're right, Joab. Joab's no atheist in the foxhole. Even perhaps this is. Perhaps this is a deathbed confession. It doesn't seem to stick. So, it doesn't seem to signal a, a fundamental and permanent change in Joab's direction of life. We put it that way. All right, what else? One quick note as we 
pass by it. Um, looking at just the bird's eye view in chapter 8, where we see all David's conquests and his expansion of territory, it could be easy to read that as David is just in favor of imperial expansion for its own sake, right? He's just expanding his territory and his power base and whatnot. But given how we see this specific conflict unfold when we get the full story, it suggests that maybe all of that apparent expansion in chapter 8 was actually done for the sake of defending Israel. Because you'll see here, although David is able to react on the front foot instead of on the back foot, he's able to take initiative. He's still, all throughout this chapter, he's never the aggressor. He's able to respond before they accomplish what they intend to do. But he's never the aggressor. And most of this, um, well, we could argue about where geographically this is taking place at different moments. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it isn't. But David is always responding defensively, even if preemptively. Um, In the previous chapter, particularly in this chapter, there's a sense in which we see David at his best. Best in terms of how his intelligence network is functioning. Best in terms of his understanding of strategy and his acting as a, as a general and as a king who's the military executive, best in terms of his concern for his people and his willingness to defend them, right? In the first round of the conflict, he sends Joab with the army. Uh, and in doing so, he doesn't put himself in danger. He doesn't commit more forces than necessary. And Joab and those who go with him win the conflict. Right? This is a, a legitimate uh, staying behind of David. He doesn't need to lead from the front in that sense. But when more people come and it's more intense, David goes with them with a much larger army. And David has an awareness, an ability to sense a knowledge of battle and of the opposing forces such that he knows when it's appropriate to send a smaller force versus commit the whole army and call up conscripts and go himself. So this chapter on several levels seems to be David again at his best subduing the more impressive of the two opposing armies that are cooperating together, right? So that the Syrians become subject to Israel They make peace with them, right? And they're afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. Which also means, if if you're thinking about the map, that Ammon is now squeezed between Israel and a powerful nation subject to Israel. So this would be a good moment for Ammon to just be quiet and maybe send David an apology. That's not what they're going to do. Although that's going to remain unresolved for a little while. That would be the smart move. And instead, they're, now they're the ones between a rock and a hard place. They've got David on the one side and Syria on the other. David Firth, um, commenting on that conversation between Joab and Abishai, uh, says this. He puts it better than I can. I should have read this in the first place. Says the brothers agreed to help each other, though if both were under pressure, nothing could be done. 
The only remarkable element was Joab's piety when referring to the cities of our God and the hope that Yahweh would do what was good in his eyes. Such expressions are more typical of David than Joab. This is part of a process of character reversals running through chapters 10 through 12, where David becomes a murderer. Joab expresses piety, and a Hittite is the most faithful Yahwist of all. Though Joab reverts to type when conspiring with David to murder Uriah. So across those three chapters, a whole host of reversals. Who are the world powers at this time? Is Egypt a power? Egypt definitely still has influence. But during David's reign, we don't hear a lot about the powers in Mesopotamia on the one hand and the powers in Egypt on the other. Uh, It's as though there's a lull during the same time that David comes to power. Um, There's a lot of potential reasons for that in terms of just world history and movements of nations. Um, There's a group of that we haven't been able to identify from the record that they call the sea peoples that moved around the Mediterranean. So, yeah, this is the very beginning of the Iron Age. That's about 1000 BC. So, So we've had kind of a collapse of neighboring civilizations that's led to this lull. And so you can get a sense of it because Syria, who's usually squeezed between one world power and another, just like Israel, is flexing its muscles and moving around and successful. Uh, We'll see that again during Ahaz's, uh, no, not Ahaz, Ahaz's father's reign. We'll see it at at the beginning of Isaiah uh, and late in 2 Kings. So right now there doesn't seem to be a dominant kind of master world power. So the Levant wasn't really invaded by the sea people? Uh, unless they're the Philistines or Phoenicians, yeah, which is possible. Uh, and it's also possible that Israel and Syria are far enough inland and not big enough targets at the time that the sea peoples weren't really interested in them. So. Um, one more thing that caught my eye here. In chapter, I mean, in verse 19, it talks about when they're captured, that they made peace with the Israelites and, and then became subject to them. So I thought, interesting that you've just been defeated, but we made peace. And what it kind of paints a picture of, sorry about that, guys. We're, <laughs> we're going to be all friends now. And, I mean, it's just an interesting choice of words. Yeah. Like, hey, that check you sent us to, to be your mercenaries, um, we're going to send it back unsigned. We're, uh, we're done here. We're David's friends now. Good luck with that. It didn't make them, it didn't make them sound like captured slaves. It just made them sound like, war's done. We're good. You know what? Why don't we just go back home and send a present to David? <laughs> All right, chapter 11. This is going to be difficult to do, but try for the next half hour to wipe from your memory anything you've ever read or watched or heard about this chapter in 2 Samuel. And instead, read the text and pay careful attention to what it says and what it doesn't say. Uh, As one example, right? 
the title in my Bible says David and Bathsheba. And we all know Bathsheba's name and we all know who she is. She's mentioned by name once in the entire chapter. The rest of the time, if she's referred to at all, it's the wife of Uriah, which we get twice, once right after her name, or her. She actually takes up very little space in the chapter. There's our first hint that some of the things we've heard or some of the things we've read or some of the things Hollywood has made of this or have nothing to do with what the chapter actually says. So, all right, let's read it. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they've ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, 
but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Why is he able to see her baby? That kind of bothers me. That's a good question. Now, they didn't have bathrooms. Exactly. They didn't have bathrooms, right? We read this and we assume our experience of bathing and washing. So we imagine, right, going into an inner room, closing and locking the door behind us, starting the water, pulling the curtain, and then there, where nobody can see anybody or anything, we lather up, we rinse off, and repeat, right? That's not what it was like in the ancient world. It was not what it was like in an ancient city at all. So he's washing. Right? We hear bathing and we think submerged in a tub, stark naked. She may or may not have been naked, but it was super common at this time of day, in this time of the year, for everybody to be up on their roof. It was like a patio. It was like an extra room. So she's probably not up on her roof in her birthday suit for all the neighbors to see. Whatever she's doing, right? She's clearly washing. We learn from a little bit later in the chapter that she's, she's actually adhering to the law, right? She's going through this ritual washing for her purification. And the timing, and the reason for that is going to be important in a minute. But this is one of the things I mean when I say, like, our experience of this chapter through some sermons, through some Bible studies, especially through Hollywood's take on it is going to lead us to, to misread what's happening. Right? There doesn't seem to be anything unusual about people being up on their roof, about the fact that she's up on the roof washing, and the things we assume about what that involves probably weren't the case. Maybe they were. It doesn't say David looked down and saw her naked. It says David looked down and saw that she was very beautiful. And it's interesting that it's not until David knows who she is and whose she is. He summons her. Something about that information is important to David. And at the time he calls for her, he knows that she's a married woman, the wife of one of his most elite warriors who's out in the field right now. Good. What else do you see? Could you explain who the Hittites are? Are they foreigners? The Hittites are foreigners. They're further up north into Asia Minor, mountainous regions, although they came down into this region a lot. So he may not have come from the Hittites directly to enter into David's military service, although that's possible. That may just be a comment on where his family's from, because he does seem to be a faithful worshiper of the Lord. Why was David waiting till late afternoon to 
get up out of his couch. It didn't sound like he was very busy. So this time of year in this region of the world is like Mexico, right? It's hot. A lot of people take a siesta. And then you get up, right, either because you can't sleep because it's too hot or it's time to get up after you've had your siesta. You walk around and your rooftop being your patio is a natural place to do so. That's another way we often um, start this chapter on the wrong foot. How many times have you heard someone say, looking at verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David didn't. And our English translations are, are pushing us that direction. But the text is not actually trying to push us that direction. We just saw in chapter 10, when David sent Joab and the army and David remained behind. That's a perfectly ordinary and acceptable thing, depending on the nature and the extent of the conflict. That's okay. That would, that would be a, a normal thing to happen, depending on the battle in which they are engaged. There's also, we can skip over this. I think it's interesting, but the word for messenger and the word for king are very, very similar. They're the same consonants, uh, M, L, and K. So Malachim and Malachim is the difference between kings and messengers here. And both are a key word in this chapter. And so some manuscripts actually have at the time messengers go forth. Like you send messengers back and forth instead of at the time kings go forth. I don't know. I think kings is reasonable. Chronicles has kings. But there's a sense in which verse 1, verse 2, this is pretty normal, right? David happens to be home when the army's out. It's time for armies to go forth. That doesn't mean it's necessarily an occasion when David needs to go. It's late afternoon. People are waking up from their siesta. They're moving around. Bathsheba is visible from the palace roof. He's bathing. There's not necessarily anything salacious about that. Verse 3 starts to go downhill super fast. David sees that she's very beautiful, right? And then then he's like, who is that? And people tell him, right? Is this not, again, we mentioned Bathsheba, someone's daughter, someone's wife. What does David do? Mm, Nope. Nope. That's important to talk about, actually. David does not invite her. Uh, And this is another way that um, especially Hollywood helps us misread this chapter. Bathsheba is passive throughout the whole chapter, right? David does things to her. He comes when she's summoned. He sends word that she's pregnant. He mourns her husband. Those are her only actions. Everything else happens to her. This whole chapter is about David's sin. There's no suggestion by the narrator that she is trying to seduce or tempt David or that she is complicit in his actions. There's also nothing stronger that would completely acquit her of all of those things either. We can press too much on the silence and make of it more than the narrator does. We just flatly don't get any information about Bathsheba at all, except, right, because the focus is entirely on David. David definitely acts guilty. I mean, there's no, like, no attempt to kind of 
deal with this by, you know, putting her to death for adultery or... That's the other interesting element, right? Because often also we tend to, to read this chapter as though David is trying to cover things up and hide his sin by bringing Uriah back and trying to arrange a situation where it's perfectly conceivable that Uriah got her pregnant. But David sent people to go get her after asking semi-publicly at least, about who she is and getting an answer. Right? David's sin is not hidden. This is not private. This is not unknown. How much Joab knows or doesn't know is another question because he doesn't seem to know what's going on. Joab obviously does, but maybe that's just between David and Joab. But even the messenger seems to know. You notice that. Because both Joab and the messenger, interestingly, they take the instructions given to them and they kind of handle things on the fly, right? Joab doesn't do exactly what David says. Turns out to be better and less suspect the way Joab goes about arranging Uriah's murder. The same thing, the messenger gets these instructions from Joab and he clearly understands, okay, the way to keep David from getting angry is to make sure he knows that Uriah is dead. He doesn't wait for David to ask. He just tells him. I think probably everybody, or perhaps everybody except Uriah, knows what's up. This is not a cover-up. Could it just be a bad (laughs) cover-up? Could be a bad cover-up. But notice, if this is not David and Bathsheba, but David and Uriah, look how often, look how consistently Uriah highlighted. Think about Saul. Think about Saul's interactions with David. Saul was suspicious of David, who was a powerful, successful warrior in his service. Saul sought both covertly and overtly to assault David and remove any kind of threat he posed. David seems to be treating Uriah similarly. He's assaulting Uriah through his wife, through an attempt at a legal entrapment that we'll talk about, and finally by arranging to have him killed on the battlefield. You back up and you see that at work across the chapter, it suddenly becomes a lot more terrifying than David trying to cover up an indiscretion. David's actually pursuing an extended campaign against Uriah on several fronts. David had to deliver the letter to say to put him on the front line to kill him. So he Yeah. And even if Uriah knows exactly what's up, right? He can either go to battle and take his chances against the enemy and maybe he'll win. Or he can break open the letter and read it, which is a capital offense, and he'll be executed for that. Uriah's trapped. Yeah. There's no way out for Uriah. This chapter's always made me so bad at things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it should. Just in some deceit. And you're right. What he did to him. Power corrupts. And that's yeah. what he's allowed all the power to corrupt him. And he's abusing his power. And what does Joab refer to in the message? I, I can't remember what you read. Yeah, well, it's, it's Abimelech. It's Judges 9, right? Uh, this is always a trick question, right? If somebody asks you, who's the first king of Israel? Well, a lot of people are going to answer David. 
because they forget about Saul. And some people are going to answer Saul. And then you're like, well, actually, if you look at Judges, Abimelech reigned for a little bit. Uh, it's like, oh, okay, maybe it's Abimelech. But Abimelech's dad, Gideon, said, I will not reign over you because the Lord reigns over you. So then you're like, oh, is it, is it the Lord? So it's a trick question. But Abimelech ruled as king, abused that power, caused a civil war with Shechem. And in the midst of all of this going on, Joab, partly because it's relevant with the city wall, but also because he knows David's going to get it. He sends David a message, a, a, a kind of under-the-surface under message by way of the messenger saying, hey, I know what you're doing. This is a royal abuse of power, and this is not okay. And look what happened last time somebody did this. And, and nowhere in this chapter is there any mention of Lord, the Lord or God. This is just... People. Actually, there is, but who's the one who mentions? Uh, you know, Joab, my lord, you know, is it, mm -hmm. whatever servant says to my servant, how's it say it? Let me find it. It also says that it displeased the Lord. Yes. But the thing oh, David had done displeased the Lord. Yeah, but I mean, it's not, well, I'm getting that. What I meant to say was, there's, you know, in previous chapters, David's going, his actions, he's attributing, him, attributing them to the Lord. Here, he makes no reference to that. Notice, yes. I can see how David could be attacking Uriah through his wife, but why, if it's, if it's not a cover-up, does the news of the pregnancy prompt David to summon Uriah? Why isn't, it already, why isn't there already a message in route to Joab saying, put Uriah on the front lines? He was trying to make Uriah look like the father. Yeah, but that would assume that would right. <laughs> the pregnancy is outside David's control. So he's reacting to that. It's not the cover-up is maybe no part of what's going on, but it's not the bulk of what's going on. And part of what we see, right, we mentioned, you know, if Joab intercepts or if uh, Uriah intercepts the message that he's carrying, he has to commit an executable offense in order to do so. But take a second look at his conversation with David. His conversations with David. His first conversation with David. This is obscured a little bit in English, but David asked about the peace of Joab and the peace of the people and the peace or the welfare of the war, which is the last thing David's concerned about, right? His peace. But then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Then he sends a present. And this is a euphemism that we don't use in English. But in Hebrew, this is a phrase that could mean, hey, your feet stink. Here's a towel. Or it could mean, go home and spend some time with your wife. So David doesn't tell him, go home and spend some time with your wife. But he uses a phrase that could mean that. And then he sends a present after him. What's the problem with that? Uriah is on active duty. If we go back and look at Exodus 19, right? When, when the Lord is about to meet with Israel on Sinai, one of, their, one of the things he commands them is to refrain from spending time with their wives. If we look at Deuteronomy 23, when it's talking about the arrangement of the army camp, anyone who becomes unclean through a nocturnal emission gets 
kicked out of the camp until they're clean. They can't come back into the camp. When David in 1 Samuel 21 is on the run and he shows up at Nob and he's talking with the priest and is trying to get the showbread, what's the priest's concern? Have the men kept themselves from women? And David's like, yeah, we always do that when we're on mission. How much more so in this urgent matter that the king has sent me on as he lies through his teeth and the priest probably knows it, right? David is trying to entice Uriah to break these regulations while he's on active duty, which possibly at at the very least means legal entanglement, but potentially also could result in him being executed. And David is trying to push him to do this. He gets frustrated because he doesn't do it. And notice Uriah's faithfulness and his loyalty. David, what's the reason he's not going to do this? Because he's David's loyal servant. Because the ark of God is in a tent. How can I go home? David even gets him drunk in an attempt to try and lower his inhibitions and encourage him to go home and then break all of this. And there's a lovely way a fellow named Ackroyd captures that. He says, Uriah drunk is more pious than David sober. I'll say that again. Uriah drunk is more pious than David sober. And you mentioned this chapter makes you mad. Well, it just makes me furious at David. Ooh. What he did to Uriah. I mean, just blatant. I mean, have it, like Margaret said, having him carry the note. I mean, good grief. How just crass could he be? Yeah. Despicable. He is. It's just despicable in this chapter. <laughs> you should absolutely be furious with David in this chapter. You should also be terrified for Israel. David is demonstrating in this chapter that he's every bit as bad as Saul. He has become the king Samuel warned about who would take. He's become the kind of monarch that Abram was afraid Pharaoh was, right? Why does Abram tell Sarah to lie and tell people you're my sister? Because he thinks they're going to get down to Egypt and Pharaoh's going to see how beautiful she is and she's going to kill him and take her. Well, guess what David just did? Indeed, which is going to become a large part of what Nathan says in the next chapter. But we end this chapter with this unresolved, but with a very ominous note. Yes. A point of clarification. So you're saying that David saw Uriah as a threat for some reason. Is that, so in pursuing Bathsheba, is that similar to when Absalom, when he's neutralizing, trying to neutralize David as a threat, he takes all of David's wives on the roof and sleeps with them for Israel? Is this the same, are you suggesting that this is the same idea? I think it's something similar. What's much more despicable in this chapter over against Saul and his suspicion of David, over against Absalom and his actions against David, of course, that's its own instance, and it flows from this chapter. 
We're never given any reason why David saw Uriah as a threat. We're never given any indication that he was ever anything but a loyal, faithful servant to David. We don't even get instances where both David and Uriah are praised in the same song and Uriah gets more glory, right? Saul heard those kinds of songs about David. Saul had a reason to be jealous and to be suspicious, but we're never given any reason for David's actions here. What could it be? Uriah hadn't been with his wife because he'd been in battle for a while. So this is going to be, would it be a shameful thing, being, David being found out, being the father of the child? So. Yes, but. I mean, if David, yeah. He, to, but, I mean, he is the king. He can do what he wants to. And he would be just like any neighboring king, right? And he's showing himself to have fewer and fewer inhibitions as far as being like neighboring kings. But in his mind, he's, what I'm saying, trying to yeah. articulate it. In his mind, he's trying to hide his sin. Uriah is the only one killed. The messenger's not killed. The Joab's not killed. His, his, the other members of his court, the people who are sent to get her and bring her, they're not killed. Uriah's the only one. Notice what David says to Joab in verse 25. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. And then strengthen your attack. Well, look at what it says in verse 27. Morning's over. David sent and brought her to his house. She became his wife, bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Same phrase David just used in his letter to Joab, which also indicates to us that the Lord's displeasure is about more than Bathsheba. It's about the whole after. Maybe Bathsheba wasn't quite as willing a participant and maybe brought up the fact that Uriah was there and that maybe he, it was a competition. There's a lot, right? I mean, would, that, would, that might tick him off. We would really, really, really like a window into Bathsheba's thoughts and emotions. And we don't get it. That is intentionally withheld from us. We do see in verse 5, right, that um, I'm looking at chapter 12. We're still in chapter 5. Sorry, chapter 11. Sorry. In verse 4, when it said she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, that's important on two fronts. One, it means this, this happens at a time when it's extremely likely that she will conceive as a result. And it means it's definitely 100% not Uriah's child. And one other just touch of language that the narrator uses um, in verse 27. When the morning was over, David sent and your translation may say brought her to his house. The King James has fetch. Um, The word means this and it can be used of people, but this word is usually used for gathering grain. Like you've... You've cut the grain and now you're gathering it into the barn. Just one more way about, one more way this is narrated that treats Bathsheba as an object of David's actions. 
in this chapter. This is where this ends, right? And it's 707, so to be continued, right? But this is everything we've come to see in David and hope for Israel has come to a screeching halt. Chapter 10 was David at his best. This is David at his worst. In getting Uriah, well, she already knows she's pregnant, so some time has passed. And then she, he's killed, so a little bit more time's passed. And then she has this time of mourning, and that time passes. And then he marries her. Wouldn't she start showing? Yeah, she it's yeah. just everybody knows. Yeah, that's right. If it's a cover-up, it's an extremely lousy one. But he's a king. Who's going to question it? Yeah. Exactly. He can well, roll their heads. And... He's a king, and he can take. And yeah, yeah. well, yeah. He took yeah. the messenger. Took Bathsheba. She wasn't a participant. And how could she have turned him down? Yeah. I mean, that's right. Well, that's right. Some people will read this, look at what's described, what's not described, and say, "This is rape." The power dynamics are certainly there. Her ability to say no is probably absent from this scenario. But the narrator, I think, stops just short of either affirming or denying that. That's just flatly withheld. We don't know. But we have an a indication from her uh, in verse 26, because when she heard that her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband, which means, I think that means she mourned her yeah. husband. Yeah. We see her obeying the law in washing for her purification. We see her responding in obedience to a summons from her king. We see her lamenting her husband. We see nothing except David's actions that would reflect on Bathsheba's character. Is it, are we supposed to get some hope or some, feel a little bit better about David that he goes ahead and marries her? I don't think so. <laughs> no, I don't think, this is no shotgun wedding. Well, right? I know. Well, yeah, because I know what you're saying. There was one guy that took was it Dinah that he took and then he didn't want her anymore or something? Like, yeah. But he did, Dinah, Dinah, he, him, he did want her though. Did he? Or the, there was one of them that he they didn't. Yeah, that was one of David. Oh, this comes later. Yes. That somebody yeah. didn't want. With Amnon and Tamar. That's a couple <laughs> chapters down the road. Yeah. And that, if we look at that last verse, there are two things, right? Or well, so verse 25, David's comment to Joab is going to come back to him. For the sword devours now one, and now another. We're going to hear that again. And we're left with the last word in the chapter is, it looks like David's gotten away with it. Uriah's dead. A son is born. Bathsheba's in his household. But the thing that David had done is pleased the Lord. What does this mean for 2 Samuel 7 and that covenant with David? Right? It entertained the possibility of of the sins of David's sons and the discipline that that would require. It didn't entertain the possibility of David. 
Saul was rejected. Saul's dynasty and then Saul personally was rejected for his sin, for doing things that displeased the Lord. But what does this mean for David and his house? So goes the king, so goes the nation. So what does this mean for God's people? Is, yeah. is God going to rescind his promises to David? And what's that going to do to the people if he does? Do we know any kind of timeline as far as how long it took between the covenant and David's flip? I mean, it seems no. No, we don't know. Um, and one of the reasons we don't know is because the narrator keeps, he'll, he'll narrate things chronologically for a little bit, and then he'll hit pause, and he'll narrate things thematically for a little bit, and then he'll move back into narrating things chronologically, and, and he keeps going back and forth, and that makes it difficult for us to kind of extract the timeline and trace it out. Certain things we can date, and other things we don't, we don't know when they are relative to one another. My uh, Bible has a note that says the, the time of mourning was seven days. I mean, she had to get over him quick. <laughs> nice knowing you, you're right. I mean, unbelievable. Wow, that would be so hard. I know. Well, and note how that's described, right? It's not that when the mourning was over, she grabbed her suitcase. Right. Right. David had her brought. It's like when the legally required period of mourning came to its end, at, you know, like 7.30, at 7.33, David's men were at the door. You know, even though it was a rape, she could have actually loved Uriah too, which would have been tragic, I think. Yeah. You never know when those arranged marriages, but she really could have loved Uriah and been just devastated by it. So we're four chapters in to the Gospel of Matthew on Sunday mornings, which begins, right? With this is the, the book of the generations of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We know that the line of David doesn't end here, although it could. So, so what, what is God going to do? How is this going to go forward? Will the Lord continue to deal with David? And of course, we know that he does. But that doesn't mean that there are no consequences for David or his family and in how that works out. But he does it break his covenants. He didn't break it with Abraham. He's not going to break it with David. He doesn't break covenants. You might get punished, but you're not going to get, he's not going to back out. I mean, he's not. You know, Jeremiah actually leverages that in comforting the people because they're in exile and they're, you know, why are we in exile? God's broken his promises. And he points back to Deuteronomy. He says, no, God's keeping his promises. This is exactly what he said he would do. And because he's keeping his promises to exile you, he will keep his promises to bring your grandchildren back. But sometimes it's terrifying that God keeps his covenant. So that's one thing to remember as we're reading through 2 Samuel, especially, and seeing just what an awful rascal David was we can be comforted because some of us are rascals sometimes and if you don't think you are you should ask the people around you and they might be willing to tell you a couple things and if the lord will continue to deal with david and indeed in such a way as to bring him back to himself 
and what comfort that is for us. Maybe we're not as good as David in chapter 10. Maybe we're not as bad as David in chapter 11. Maybe we're worse. But maybe the Lord will continue to deal with us in light of his promises. Let's pray. Lord, though we tremble, we thank you for the moments where you pull back the veil and reveal to us the depth of human depravity in others, in ourselves. We thank you for how you use those moments to bring us to a place of conviction and repentance that you might assure us once again of your pardon. We look forward to continuing in 2 Samuel and seeing you at work in David's life in those ways. And we pray that you would be at work in our lives in similar ways. Would you remind us of the extent of our ugliness apart from Christ, that we might appreciate all the more his beauty and the wonder of being made like him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.